You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis. This week, you've probably all used or at least been confronted with clinical decision support tools. But of the myriad available, which ones actually improve patient outcomes? We'll find out. We also found that, surprisingly, uh, presenting advice from within an electronic health record or a computerized order entry system, decision support was less likely to succeed than if you delivered the advice in some other way. For example, on paper from a nurse stapling the recommendation to a regular old paper chart. But first, getting governments to think about public health impact of their policy decisions is a laudable goal, at least according to the WHO. But in the murky world of realpolitik, other considerations often take precedent. Since devolution has granted the Welsh Government autonomy to make some of their own policy decisions, some politicians there are trying to implement the WHO's recommendations. And to discuss, I'm joined on the line from Cardiff University by Adam Fletcher, a senior lecturer in social science and health. Hi, Adam. Hi. Um, so, Wales is trying to be the first to to get this health and all policies framework in place. Why is that? Um, why are they sort of in the vanguard? I think Wales has probably got quite a strong tradition in terms of health impact assessment um, and quite a strong um, commitment to health traditionally. And I think devolution's also been quite a, a strong driver um, towards new public health ideas within not just Wales, but also um, probably Scotland as well. So the d- devolved context is also probably driving this. Mm. But there's a difference between implicitly doing that and explicitly you know putting that into the into the constitution Mm. as it were so i mean who's leading on this is there a sort of political force behind it um i think i think it was in in the in the labor manifesto last time it would be the first time wales had ever had a, a public health bill so the the idea of a kind of a new public health bill which placed a statutory duty on bodies to consider public health issues is something they're consulting on, I think, because it's quite a radical approach. So as you say, at the moment, they're consulting on this Mm. uh, green paper, Mm. um, which for people outside the UK is the sort of first stage in in getting a bill through Parliament to get into legislation. How do they think they're going to be able to actually do some some of this health impact assessment? Has that been tied down in any way? No, and I think that that's one of the things they're consulting on as well, um, and why you know I thought it was you know it's important that we kind of draw attention to this as a as a public health community. The you know the question is out there, kind of what is the best way to kind of move this health in all policies approach forward. And I think one of the best examples is is the example from South Australia, which you know Wales could essentially use as a, you know use as a model. It's a kind of proof of concept that mm. it is possible to kind of assess. Um, different policy domains through a health lens without having sort of policy making inertia at the same time. Um, so there are there are some models out there. Mm-hmm. So if we have a look at um, that South Australian model at the moment, uh, they've had their health and all policies aimed since 2007. So is there any uh, assessment of how well that's gone? Has it made an impact on public health? I mean, I think the reporting of it um, suggests it's, it 
you know, it has worked well. And obviously one of the main concerns with this is that you end up with kind of no policy making because, mm-hmm. you know, you can't get anything through because you end up kind of blocking everything on kind of health grounds and, you know, you end up doing more harm than good. And there's certainly, I don't think there's any evidence of that. And I think the strength of the process that they use there is that you engage different stakeholders at the start and kind of work together. And it's kind of a, um, a sort of reciprocal process. So, for example, if you're looking at education policy, you don't just kind of ask how, how can education policy support health? You also ask how can health support education policy? And then the education and the health policy makers work together. And I think that's probably the strength the strength of that approach. And there's, there seems to be um, quite a lot of positive reporting, particularly around children and young people's health mm. through using that model. Because obviously children and young people are a group where they don't tend to use health services a great deal. The, the, the main way in which you're going to kind of influence and improve um, their health is actually through other policy domains, um, which they actually come into contact with a lot more in terms of public policy. Mm. Um, obviously a big driver of uh, public health problems is uh, the social determinants of health. Um, yeah. Without you know, something fundamentally tackling some of these, that this is actually going to be able to make a, a really big impact, or is it just going to be a fig leaf? I mean, that, that, that's the problem for the, for the Welsh Government generally in terms of tackling public health, that obviously one of the, the areas they don't have control over is, is economic policy, and it's very hard for them to, to address poverty and inequality directly, mm-hmm. um, which are obviously two of the biggest drivers of um, the relatively poor health profile of Wales. Um, so the, but I think in terms of the, the constraints which are, would, you know, that Wales faces in terms of passing a public health bill, this is probably about as, as good as it can do. I mean, ideally, you would you would address some of those broader um, determinants around poverty and inequality, as I say. But a health in all policies approach could certainly mitigate some of the societal level harms of inequality, um, and 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 potentially help you know avoid you know, exacerbating some of these problems in the future. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's not a universal panacea, but it's a step in the right direction. I mean, if you had one thing that you could get them to do, what do you think that would be? I think take take the bold approach and actually to introduce a public health bill which did compel, you know, all government ministers and all policy areas to be subjected to, you know, a health impact assessment prior you know, to a policy being passed. You know, you might you might have something which eventually ends up looking a little bit like equality and discrimination legislation does now in this country, essentially, which kind of sits above all the different policy areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and something which kind of breaches that is effectively vetoed and wouldn't and wouldn't be passed. And I think that you know would be a really good a good way. And it, you know, by going first, I think Wales could you know, attract a lot of attention and potentially a lot of resources because I think the WHO and the EU and other organisations would actually be very supportive of a radical health in all policies um, approach. To find out more about the nuts and bolts of the Green Paper, read Adam's editorial, which is now available on bmj.com. Now, you've probably all used, or at least been confronted with, clinical decision support tools, but are they actually effective at improving patient outcomes? A team in Canada has done a set of meta-analyses of 167 of these tools, and a series of articles have been published in Implementation Science about that. But the final paper, 
which looks at which features of these tools actually improve outcomes, is published on bmj.com. And earlier this week, I was joined by Pavel Roshanov, medical student at Western University in Canada and lead author to discuss. How did you get involved in this? It's it's a slightly unusual uh, project. Uh, You said you did it at grad school for a medical student to be involved in. Um, How did you get involved in it? So as an undergraduate student, I saw a very interesting presentation in my third year by someone who who was uh, presenting data on a medical error. I was just amazed that uh, I think the estimate was something like up to 7% of uh, hospitalizations result in a serious uh, serious error, uh, a serious adverse event resulting from error. And uh, I, I was very interested then in, in what kinds of things people can do to actually reduce uh, this phenomenon. So that's how I became interested in this. I've always had an interest in uh, what electronic interventions can do for us. And uh, I do think that uh, that there's a future, certainly, for them in medicine. Um, and it's interesting that you said uh, there needs to be more sort of medical informaticians out there. It's not generally something that, that fits together uh, particularly well. So it certainly is. Uh, in the United States, um, they have recently developed a, uh, the curriculum for a specialty, a medical specialty in um, medical informatics. Um, so in fact, in clinical informatics. So in fact, um, there is curriculum being developed for clinicians to become increasingly involved in this. But perhaps the right person um, to be involved in the uh, clinical oversight um, and the dedicated processes for actually ensuring high-quality decision support in our hospitals and, and clinics around the world is not necessarily a clinician, um, certainly not necessarily a physician, um, but someone who's then able to, um, to work with clinical staff to ensure that the prompts they receive uh, are actually likely to uh, improve clinical care and not, not upset clinicians and not, um, not be ignored and certainly not cause patient harm. Just before we go on, just to sort of classify what these clinical decision support systems are, they're the ones that, as a doctor is going through a consultation of some sort, will pop up um, advice or, you know, warnings uh, as it goes on. It's not about auditing clinical records or anything like that after the fact. No, so uh, it's good. We should clarify Um Clinical decision support, uh, really here we meant a set of algorithms that can be built either into electronic uh, patient records or computerized uh, provider order entry systems, or um, they can be standalone programs where the physician or, or someone else enters data about the patient and an algorithm uh, matches best care recommendations uh, to the right patient and may then generate a prompt, an alert, a reminder, some kind of advice that gets delivered to the clinician. Yeah, and I'm sure many of our listeners are used to seeing those kind of things. Um, now, in this paper that you've published in the BMJ, you were trying to figure out what kind of uh, features of those programs were actually able to, to do that. So um, what did you find when you looked at that? 
So actually, we, we looked at both successful and unsuccessful systems. So we looked at our entire data set of 162 randomized controlled trials. Just over half of the systems succeeded in improving care or outcomes, but the other bunch didn't. And we wanted to know what made the difference. So first thing that we did was we confirmed that systems that were tested by the people who developed them were more likely to show benefit. <laughs> Uh, we also found that if you give advice to patients, either directly or through the clinician, uh, you're more likely to improve benefit than if you only gave advice to clinicians. We also found that, surprisingly, uh, presenting advice from within an electronic health record or a computerized order entry system, decision support was less likely to succeed than if you delivered the advice in some other way. For example, on paper from a nurse stapling the recommendation to a regular old paper chart or delivering it physically, or over the telephone. Hmm. We also found that if you force clinicians to give a reason uh, when they ignore advice, uh, those systems were more likely to improve care or outcomes than if clinicians were able to just go on about their work without um, justifying why they're not doing what the uh, advice says. Well, it's quite interesting what you found there. Um, you mentioned in the paper alert fatigue. Um, and that's a bit like people just clicking OK uh, to accept terms and conditions. It's something where people don't really acknowledge um, the alert that's coming up. Do you think that's a big part of the lack of success in some of these systems? Yes. So the finding that presenting advice within electronic health records is um, a very interesting one and be quite perplexing because so far we've assumed that if you uh, give clinicians advice from these systems as they're using them to do the regular charting and order tests and drugs and so on, um, you're going to get the best effect. Now what happens when you have electronic records and you have this rich data contained within them uh, is that it becomes fairly easy to program these algorithms that can be triggered by whatever the clinician does or whatever information about the patients the record contains and to then start flashing a whole bunch of alerts what the literature has found is that when people receive many alerts like this, especially if many of the alerts are not high quality or uh, particularly pertinent to the patient um, or, to, or they don't matter to that clinician, they're not actually teaching the clinician anything new, um, people just begin to ignore all of the alerts because there are just so many and they know that many of them are not relevant. And we think that that might be driving the lack of success when presenting advice within electronic records. Now, we didn't test that directly. We had no way of doing that, but that, that's certainly an area that uh, people are exploring. Right, so it's, uh, you have to be careful there then. Um, you mentioned also that patients seem to respond to this more than clinicians. Do you have any idea why that would be? It's possible that patients uh, just have less prompt uh, coming at them, and, uh, and perhaps they also benefit from the empowerment that they receive when they receive this specific advice for their condition and that they can walk away with. The second thing is, in many of the systems, patients were walking away with printed material that represented advice from the clinical encounter, as opposed to simply having to remember what they heard, what they were advised. And we know from other research that patients often forget a large chunk of the information that they're presented uh, during the clinical encounter. Uh, the other thing that may be happening is that the patient begins to act as a reminder system himself for the clinician. 
in some trials, patients were mailed reminders, and they were told to print these out and take them with them to the next clinical encounter. So this may, in fact, act as a more potent type of reminder that clinicians cannot simply ignore, uh, as they may be doing with the prompts from um, electronic records. I mean, what does your, your research mean for someone who's perhaps you know, looking to purchase a system like this for their, their practice? Uh, what kind of things should they bear in mind? So what we've learned from the research in general is that interventions like this are not something you can buy and get benefit from out of the box. Um, as clinicians increasingly use electronic charting and order entry systems, they should become familiar with the alerting capabilities of their systems, uh, where to find the alerts, even how to create such alerts, and how to manage them. It's becoming clear that there's a need for people trained in health informatics or health information management that have the skills to implement knowledge management interventions like this and to manage them. We now have evidence that if your system allows you to print or otherwise send personalized recommendations to your patients um, and leave them with more than mere memory of the patient encounter, uh, you may be able to improve patient health. So perhaps that's an issue or, or that's a feature that um, clinicians should, should consider when, when using a system. But this is an area that we really need to learn more about. Recent advances in uh, what people have called mobile health uh, suggested a future is coming in which patients are electronically connected to their own personal health records and patient portals. Uh, and vendors of electronic health records are going to be able to deliver advice to both patients and practitioners in the future. So I think that's something certainly to be looking out for. Great. Well, uh, Pavel, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. And again, that research is available on bmj.com. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week finding out how to put compassion back into care. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.